welcome to episode 223 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare. Today, Nancy Springer is joining the podcast to talk about Enola Holmes and the Black Barouche, the seventh in her series about Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes' much younger sister. Thank you for taking the time to join the podcast. Oh, my, my pleasure. So before Enola, you had written shelves and shelves of novels, I think 50. Fantasy, stories of the supernatural, horror, ghost stories, mystery and suspense, for which you have won two Edgar Awards. So when did Enola Holmes come to you? How, do, how did you discover the great, greatest detective's sister? It was an extraordinarily prosaic story, just uh, so mundane. My editor called me and asked me to write something set in deepest, darkest London at the time of Jack the Ripper. And I thought he was crazy. But the man had a nose for trends or a kind of an instinct for what might sell. And he was saying, I'd have you do Jack the Ripper, except somebody else already is. And I'm thinking, no, I don't do historical. And what, what, what? So, but he was a good editor. So I thought about it and I realized I had done Arthurian for him because when I was a child, I had read and read my mother's Arthurian books. And I had done uh, the Rowan Hood for him because when I was a child, I had read my mother's Robin Hood books. What did I read as a child that was set in that place, that time? And of course it was Sherlock Holmes. My mother had the entire set of Conan Doyle and I had memorized it by the time I was 12 or so. And the idea of writing something uh, springing off of the Sherlock Holmes mythos, much like springing off of the Arthurian mythos or the Robin Hood mythos, uh, I thought of giving Sherlock Holmes a daughter, immediately rejected the notion. To, to my mind, Sherlock Holmes is a virgin. Maybe everybody will not agree with that, but it's uh, I, I could not conceive of him conceiving a child. So I gave him a much younger sister. I did, I did the math, I did some research. And then I said, okay, I guess I'm going to write historical after all. And I just leaped into two years of research before I could even begin to write. Well, you know, the, you, you touch on this, the universe of Sherlock Holmes is, is sort of exponentially expanding. Yes. Um, there are stories about Sherlock, his wife, Mary Russell. Uh, he's not a virgin in that series. Oh dear. His brother, Mycroft, and even his nemesis, Moriarty. Uh, and they're written by such authors as Anthony Horowitz, Lindsay Fay, Laurie R. King, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, among many others. My, my partner in the podcast, Les Klinger, is a noted Sherlockian. Um, so... I was just wondering, where does Enola fit in this wonderful universe of Sherlock? I mean, it, it's, did you feel uh, like you were expanding the universe in this whole other direction? How did it make you feel? It felt very, very, very good. But I must admit, I was not aware of, uh, what did you say, Mary Russell? And Mary Russell. Um, uh, Laurie R. King writes a series about uh, Sherlock Holmes and his wife, Mary Russell. And uh, the most recent is Castle Shade. 
uh, she, she brings Sherlock a little bit forward in time into the early 20th century. No, truth to tell, I never followed any of the other Sherlockian pastiches. I simply read and memorized and revered the original, I guess they call it the canon. And, uh, but my one, as I grew older and more feminist, my one pet peeve, so to speak, with Sherlock was his attitude towards women, that he disregarded their importance and their ingenuity and their intuitions. And I felt that he, well, first of all, you must understand that I am a baby sister of two older brothers. Okay. And I know what a kid sister can do to an older brother. I have quite a bit of experience making their lives hell. So <laughs> I felt that Sherlock Holmes very much deserved and a younger sister to put him down a peg. Just, just uh, show him that women were smart. With the exception of Irene Adler, he does. Yes, of course. The woman. Yes, of course. Um, so just as a reader, uh, I've enjoyed your novels. Uh, I am confused by the designation young adult fiction. You certainly don't dumb down the vocabulary. Oh, in no. Enola Holmes and the Black Barouche, you had me looking up plenty of words and I can, you know, sort of flatter myself that I have a good vocabulary, maybe not. Uh, and, and not to mention the subject matter. I think this, no this novel is for anyone who enjoys a good read. And so I, I have to ask you, uh, you know, I understand that, you know, it's for shelf space and where in the uh, publishing universe something goes. But why is this considered YA fiction? That, that's interesting because the whole concept of YA fiction is very vexed. It's uh, half of all, half of the readership of YA fiction is adults. And supposedly it's meant for teenagers, but teenagers who are actually reading and interested in reading wouldn't be caught dead with a YA book. Teenagers <laughs> who you know, they don't want this book meant for teenagers. It's problem novel or whatever. They want real books. I know I did as a teen. So most young adult novels are read by 12-year-olds and adults, uh, or maybe bright 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds. Uh, the, the category was actually created back in the 1950s by librarians trying to censor what, what teenagers read. And they designated a section of the library for YA, young adult. And they put uh, things that didn't have too much sex or too much, uh, too many bad words, they, they put in that section. Uh, very well-meaning and totally uh, ineffectual. And they, uh, the editors started to write for the library, I'm sorry, the publishers started to write for the librarians. And the category, the vexed category was born. Uh, the reason, reason the Black Baroche is YA probably is because it's very short. And also because my earlier Enola Holmes books were brought out as YA, young adult. But 
when they were published in paperback, somebody looked at how short they were and decided that they were middle grade, which is eight to 12. Yeah. And that is what is said on their covers. And they, it, it's amazing that uh, adult readers have so beautifully picked up on the fact that these are worth reading. Well, you say that they're short, but you know, like, and believe me, I've read a lot of crime fiction and thrillers and many, many books. Um, I think much like films, many of them may have become too long. I'm also a former editor. And um, I think some books could use with some judicious pruning. <laughs> I have nothing against a book. I would guess that Enola Holmes was... 50,000 words? You know, I don't really know. I, and, I don't think that way. And, but, but this is, you know, many of uh, Agatha Christie's novels, you know, she who's considered the mother of um, certain parts of the genre, uh, often had books about that length. So it's interesting. I, it never occurred to me that because it's short, it must be for short people. And, and because the uh, main character is, uh, well, in my book, she's 14. And according to the formulas, 8 to 12, kids who are 8 to 12 years old want to read about somebody slightly older. So a 14-year-old protagonist means 8 to 12-year-old novels. Uh, but of course, there are many, many writers who write from the point of view of a child books that are clearly clearly meant for adults. So it, it uh, baffles me also. Okay, so we, we are in good company, you and me. <laughs> Baffled by this. Yes. The rights of women and children are front and center in Enola's story, not just the Black Barouche, but previous books. So in the novel that preceded the Black Barouche, um, uh, the Gypsy Goodbye, um, Enola investigated the disappearance of a woman whose undergarments were so restrictive that when they were removed, she couldn't even stand on her own. In yes. Black Barouche, a husband or father or, you know, for that matter, a brother could have an inconvenient woman removed to a, to a sanitarium or, you know, a place for people who have mental health issues without any right of redress. And Enola's case in the Black Barouche is to find such a woman who has been removed by her husband, who seems to be a habitual wife remover. So can you talk a little bit about, about the case and, um, you know, uh, and maybe mention what the Black Barouche is? I had to look it up, by the way. It's uh, one of the many names for a horse-drawn vehicle, like, how do you pronounce Phaeton? Is that about right, P-H? Phaeton, yes. I, I've just been listening to uh, Stephen Fry's uh, Mythos, where he retells the Greek myths. So I just heard him tell the story of Phaeton. And uh, just, uh, they had carriages, they had gigs, dog carts, drags, uh, so many names for a horse-drawn vehicle. I'm looking for a page in my notes here because I want to read. Oh, here we go. Okay. 
as far as uh, removing women, okay, so the Black Rouge is what they took people away in. It was kind of an urban mystery or an urban uh, legend. I recall when I was a child, every spring there was an outbreak of rabies caused by a big black dog. So, of course, it had to be a big black barouche and it also alliterates. Mm -hmm. uh, what they could put women in or what women were admitted for. I have a, a list here that runs on to two pages. I'll, I'll skip the most obvious ones. Anxiety of mind, atmospheric exposure, chorea, cramp, consulting wise men, domestic afflictions, disappointed love, dissipation, no, dis, yeah, dissipation, death of relative or friend, deprivation of sleep, fear, hypochondria, intransigence, injuries of head, jealousy, influenza, inflammation, infidelity, loss of leg, loss of blood, misfortunes in business, murdering her child. Okay, I'll, I'll grant you that one. Uh, poverty and distress, pride, pecuniary disappointment, palpitations of the heart, uh, quarrel with neighbors, receiving relief undeservedly, religious anxiety, reading plays, novels, etc. suspected embezzlement, suppression of urine. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, anything they could think of. <laughs> I'm sure I could have probably been put away for picking my nose. Well, I, I mean, I, you, exactly. Anything that they could think of, uh, including uh, holding in your urine so you don't soil yourself. That's you know, interesting. Uh, is that what that means? I never could quite figure it out. Well, you either hold it in or let it go. And usually you let it go when you go to the bathroom. This is, you know, it's, it's, it really is quite a list, Nancy. Amazing. <laughs> and that was only half of it. I was skipping. Well, the murdering of the child, I'll give you that. That, that might uh, be <coughs> something that could get you locked up. But uh, the rest of them, I don't know, palpitations? Relead, uh, reading? Reading. Re reading novels. Well, most of us would be locked up, I guess. Yep. So you, you felt that that was something that, you know, women, are, not just women, readers of any age should be aware that uh, this sort of overt campaign against women has been going on for a very, very long time, even in civilizations that we sort of think of as either quaint or civilized. Yes, alas, it, and it continues to go on um, throughout most of the world. Uh, we're very lucky here in this country that uh, we still have to fight for our rights and we still have to guard our rights carefully as women. And we are still the only minority that is a majority. Exactly. And so Enola has this very interesting relationship with her brothers by the time we get to the Black Barouche. And they're no longer trying to contain her uh, physically, which they, they did try to do in the first books. 
to the point where she felt she had to escape. Uh, but there, you know, a couple of people have said to me, well, you know, Enola's very young, 14, 15. That, that's very, very young to be out on your own. But actually it isn't for the time. Um, I'm not sure what the legal age of majority was in Victorian England, but I know women were being married off at 15 and 16 years old and children and working and being, I think you could go into service as young as 12. So you could go into domestic service as, as a child. Uh, you could certainly work in the factories uh, of which there, there were more and more on a daily basis. So talk yeah. about that a little bit about her, you know, her age, and I'm using air quotes. Yes. Oddly, the legal age of majority was 21, but children were expected to basically behave like miniature adults practically as soon as they could walk. Uh, children routinely worked at all sorts of labor, depending on uh, their need to do so, their economic status. At most, uh, you would find four or five, six-year-olds working as street sweepers or selling things, uh, selling matches, for instance, or, or selling flowers. Uh, the majority of London labor was teenage or less uh, in the factories, in the homes, uh, everywhere. P young people were simply living as adults. Most of them, many of them were homeless, sleeping on the streets. Uh, the, the number of orphaned or not exactly orphaned, but children who have par had parents who couldn't afford them was huge. It was the majority of the young population was on their own. And uh, they had no rights. If uh, they, for instance, committed a crime, they could be brought before the law in the same way as an adult could be brought before the law and punished in the same way as an adult could be punished, but they had no right to vote and no recourse, no, uh, they were pretty much, I would say the majority of the population, including grown women at that time, quite simply had no rights. Uh, women did not have the right to hold property until I think it was 1872. Before then, everything a woman had belonged to her husband. Or her father or her brother or some male relative. Right. And uh, children similarly had, uh, were expected to work up to, the, up to their utmost capacity and were often killed by their work, but had no rights. And of course, those that... that didn't die uh, were, were just open for all kinds of exploitations uh, from, from the very grimmest to just, you know, be cheated and, and lied to and taken advantage of uh, financially as well as uh, sexually exploited. And uh, it, it wasn't pretty. No, it certainly wasn't. 40% of children died before adulthood. 40%. And Enola is, is determined to help the people that come to her uh, that would otherwise have nowhere else to turn. Not, not unlike her brother, 
uh, although he certainly was much pickier and much choosier. Um, but Enola has a mission. Well, I certainly, in, when she was the sister of the night, I, I, I loved writing that. I, you know, she invents a portable fire, which is a tin can uh, stuffed with combustibles like newspaper and then with paraffin poured in, wick mm -hmm. added. Well, she didn't invent that, I did. <laughs> but uh, just, yeah, I, I, the whole concept of being uh, a rescuer, a savior, a helper, uh, one of the helpers, as Mr. Rogers used to put it, runs very deep in me. And that's one of the things I love the most about Sherlock, the fact that he and Watson are willing to just get in there and no matter what the law says, if somebody needs their help, they're going to, they're going to take care of it even if they have to do breaking and entering or, or whatever it may be. So what has it meant to you to have Enola turned into a live action uh, show? Uh, I know what it's meant to me as a viewer. It was immensely enjoyable. So, but from the person who created the character and you're seeing this character and the stories you wrote now in three dimensions, what, what did that mean to you? Well, uh, the, the most rewarding thing about it is that I have spent most of my life writing uh, as, a, as a youth advocate, mostly for teenagers and young people. And it was a kid. It was a 12-year-old girl, actually, who decided that Enola Holmes would be made into a movie. It was not a CEO. It was Millie Bobby Brown. She, Paige Brown, read the books and passed them on to Millie. And Millie Brown said, I want to do this. I want to do this as a movie. And she had enough clout at the time uh, because of Stranger Things. She was able somehow to make it happen. And it was supposed to be a uh, theater release. It was supposed to be her, uh, her first feature film. But uh, because of COVID, it was later released on Netflix. And I'm just as glad because Netflix has been wonderful to me in terms of uh, the popularity of the show and so forth. Uh, in terms of ownership or, or the, the kind of feeling of uh, Enola-ness, um, it's very confusing to me because now I'm, I'm at present writing in the, an Enola Holmes model. A move, I can't talk right. <laughs> I'm currently writing an Enola Holmes novel. There we go. And in, the, in my mind, I can picture my own Enola Holmes, but sometimes Millie Bobby Brown tends to take over. And occasionally things that happened in the movie do crop up and want to be included in the book or similar things. So it's somewhat muddled my creative process. Um, there were things about the movie that wildly departed from my book. I always swore that Enola would never masquerade as a boy because it was such a cliche. And of course, in the movie, she does. And uh, I certainly never thought of jujitsu, though I guess in the movie, it would be difficult for them to have her carrying a dagger, a dagger in her bosom uh, and whipping it out. That might be considered a little bit more offensive than jujitsu. Um, by and large, I totally enjoyed the movie. Just, it just blew me away. 
I, I loved what they did with her. Well, they didn't dumb her down. I totally understand the idea that uh, of having her disguise herself as a boy, but you know, I, I, I could see it as a way to uh, almost a shorthand. Yes. And, and the dagger, but you know, the, the whole of Great Britain was really taken with, you know, the Asian influence at that time. And so I could see jujitsu being uh, something that she might encounter and recognize as a useful tool. But you anticipated my, my last question, which was that I'm hoping that Enola's adventures will continue. So can you tell us a little bit about the next novel without you know, huge spoilers. <laughs> well, you know, there is going to be another movie. Be still my heart. I'm very glad about that. Yes. And that one they wrote by themselves. It's not based on any of my books. So that's going to be interesting. But I've seen the script and I think we're okay. Um, the next book... I, I must make a confession. The current books... The soon to come out Enola Holmes and the Black Baroche uh, that's going to be re released in, on August 31st, which strikes me as an odd date. Why don't they just say September and have it done with? But that was actually written probably in 2012. And at the time, nobody wanted it. Uh, and I wrote several more Enola books during that time period. Uh, when simply nothing much was happening in the publishing industry and I was scratching for spare change. And uh, the forthcoming Enola books were actually written before the movie. Uh, the one that's coming up next has to do with uh, Lady Cecily again. Oh. Once more, we seem to be back with Lady Cecily. She continues to have problems. And once more, she requires to be rescued. After that, after that, uh, not much clue. No idea. <laughs> I'm sure Enola will guide you. Oh, yes. Nancy, thank you so much for your time and for talking about uh, the books and where they came from and where they're going. <laughs>